Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Please accept this little book by Webster as a goodbye present from me. You won't have to look up deception. You're an expert at that, I can see. But if you're looking for sympathy, you'll find it in the dictionary just beyond. So long and sorry. If you're looking for consolation, yes, it's time for a lexicography show. So please get out your lexicographer hats. Don't tell me you put them away for the summer because lexicography knows no season. Yes, it would be nice. I mean, it would be nice if if words had a kind of fixed platonic quality, you know, where they just didn't change, where horse always meant a certain kind of animal and was never a synonym for heroin. And Actually, in the Connecticut State Legislature, a horse is a kind of bill that is modified to carry. Uh, a bill, it was some language that, that was never intended for it. So you, so you see, words are always squirming around and changing their meanings, and we get new words all the time. And never, or rarely, and I shouldn't say never, rarely have words changed so much and language altered so much, uh, modified itself to accommodate uh, a complex and changing situation. And that includes, uh, when I say that complex and changing situation, I mainly mean the, mean the pandemic. But to tell you the truth, here in America, we have so many crises layered upon crises that language is changing in all kinds of different ways. In fact, we right now are having a debate about something called defund the police without ever having come to a commonly agreed upon definition of that term. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about exactly. We're here to talk, first of all, with Peter Sokolowski, lexicographer and editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster. He's been with us many a time before. Also a musician, public radio jazz house at NEPR, and the author of a chapter in, uh, in The Whole World in a Book. And joining us uh, now for the first time, and we're very excited, uh, is Tony Horn, uh, a lexicographer, linguist, and language consultant in the Faculty of Arts and Humanity at King's College in London. So, uh, first of all, uh, Peter, let's begin with you. One of the things that has been notable here uh, in this time is just the rapidity uh, of, of words. I mean, I went from being a person who never talked about flattening the curve or bending the curve because I didn't know what that meant to a person who used <laughs> used it as though it were just, you know, very, very common parlance. And that over on your end is something that Merriam-Webster has had to scramble with unaccustomed speed to accommodate. Absolutely. And great to hear your voice. Um, I have to say for me personally, the abbreviation WFH for working from home uh, that was, even that was new to me. I mean, certainly the idea wasn't, but I I, I had never seen it expressed uh, as a as a as a, an abbreviation so frequently, so suddenly. But there's so many others things that that are that are that we sort of intuitively understand in the context of this crisis: patient zero, contact tracing, uh, contact less. 
uh, index case, super spreader, you know, I mean, community spread. These terms actually are, in some cases, incredibly important from an epidemiological point of view, from a public health point of view, from a personal and family health point of view. So it's really important that we have clear understanding of what they mean. And Lord knows there was a lack of clear understanding at the beginning of this crisis, and we still don't understand everything, of course. Yeah, no, I, and I think we'll get to that as well. Before I go over to Tony, though, uh, we should also say that typically in the dictionary world, in the world of lexicography, you don't make decisions in 34 days about whether to incorporate a word into some canonical dictionary understanding of the English language. During the AIDS crisis, I don't think anything like that happened, although it was obviously a crisis and obviously we needed to all be using words roughly the same way. So, I mean, give us kind of a sense of the ordinary speed of this process compared to this moment. Right. I mean, for a word to get in the dictionary or a new meaning of an existing word, uh, it usually takes, I mean, there's no average. Every word has its own pace, but it can take between five and 50 years. Uh, It's not uncommon at all for a term that is kind of used in academic circles or specialist circles. A term like systemic in the phrase systemic racism, for example, was used by sociologists 50 years ago, but it's only recently come into the sort of common parlance, the common uh, press. In the case of the word AIDS, of course, this is before the internet, um, that was the fastest a word ever moved between coinage and entry in our dictionary. And that was two years from 1982, the coinage of the term, to 1984, the first uh, the first uh, printing in 1984 of our collegiate dictionary. And so, uh, 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 you know, that is to say the new uh, uh, collegiate dictionary of 1984 included that term. Uh, after that, there were a couple that were pretty fast. The word SARS, uh, and a, a related term, I think was in four years, as was the term blog. Blog is an interesting case because it clearly named something for which we needed a name. And uh, the word was suddenly everywhere. And so what, the criteria are simple, widespread use used in many publications, long-term use, evidence that it's not going away, and uh, kind of an easily discernible, meaningful use. That is to say that the people using this term use it to mean the same thing. In this case, COVID-19 was coined in February and we added it in March. 34 days is the all-time speed record for a dictionary's inclusion of a term. And I'm not sure that I'll ever see anything that fast again. So, Tony Horn, uh, uh, just in the way that on an ordinary uh, in an ordinary year, everybody, I suppose, in England thinks he or she is an expert uh, about cricket or football or something. Everybody is now an expert about medicine, and speech has become medicalized, uh, if that is a word. Maybe you can say a, a little bit uh, to us about that, the degree to which medical terminology is now just part of casual conversation. Well, yeah, first of all, thank you very much for uh for having me on the program. Uh, it's Thorn, by the way, not Horn. But, oh. uh, um, yeah, the, um, I've been tracking since the, since the virus really hit the language, and I've been seeing it coming in very, very rapidly into the national conversation, but in different sequences, understandably. And the first sequence was what I call the medicalization of our vocabulary. And this was 
I, I went online immediately because I knew, I, I don't want to sound heroic, but I knew that these language, a lot of it wasn't in the dictionary or it wasn't in ordinary people's vocabulary. So I went online and, and started making a glossary, a lexicon of the medical language. And this was to help people, non-specialists, and words like proning, intubation, vectors, flattening the curve itself, palliation, uh, even furloughed. For us in the UK, it was a foreign word. We've never used it since the First World War. But what I found, maybe I was being too patronizing, because what I found was people, they were grateful for having my you know, guide to this language, but they picked it up very quickly. It entered our vocabulary. People were very alert, as, as our government keeps telling us to be, and they picked up this vocabulary, and I think they were, they were able to grasp it and use it um, commendably quickly. Although I think, Tony Thorne, and terribly sorry about the introduction, uh, that you know, there are some terms where we need uh, some kind of common consensus about what the term means. And I think social distancing uh, is a pretty good example of that. People have even suggested that maybe social distancing isn't the right term to have made such a widespread term, that physical distancing might have been better, or just very specific language about stay at home, go to the grocery store once a week. Um, I mean, Tony, would social distancing maybe be a term where people have their own individual definitions that may not add up to consensus? Yeah, I think social distancing is a very interesting expression because, first of all, it didn't originally come from epidemiology. It was a, a word in sociology talking about how people organize their, their sort of family kinship groups and their relationships to them. So it was a repurposed word. It was a word that was taken over first of all by the World Health Organization and then by governments. And right from the beginning, some linguists and some other people said that it was actually misleading. And we had this debate in the UK, I think in the US, and certainly in France as well, distanciation sociale, um, that it should have been physical distancing. But I think the, I think the real problem, the problem is it is a problem of, of terminology and vocabulary first of all. But then the problem becomes what does social distancing itself actually mean? And we've seen so many interpretations by the authorities and uh, quite a lot of confusion among the people to whom it's happening. So that the, there are problems at different levels with this new terminology. Right. And so, I mean, there's a, Peter, there's a number of things in play here. One of them is if we all lived in 16th century Florence, we would know a lot of words about fountains, you know, because we'd be talking about fountains quite a bit. Uh, and and but we, we don't. We live in in 2020 in the United States and in the UK. And so there's just a tremendous fever, really, to understand these words. It's really what for March and April and May it's, you know, such a large percentage of what everybody was talking about. And you have a nice window into that just by seeing what people look up. And I assume what people look up online, the words people check, uh, were, you know, just overwhelmingly keyed to the pandemic. Absolutely. You know, one of the, the, the most rewarding parts of having a dictionary online is getting to see what 
words people look up and when they look them up. And so it's a, it's a, it's a window into uh, the news. Of course, it's sort of reading the news through the prism of vocabulary, not always the most important word, but the word that sends people to the dictionary. <laughs> um, but sometimes they are the key words. You know, the term pandemic was first uh, noticed, it, it spiked in our data on February 24th. So clearly the American public was paying attention to this news. And at that time, of course, this is long before anybody knew what social distancing was or, uh, or even had heard the term COVID-19. But this, this phenomenon was, was in, in the world and in the news. Um, by early March, yes, we saw basically our entire top uh, 50 words in the dictionary, 50 out of half a million, um, being uh, connected to this story. Pandemic, coronavirus, quarantine, epidemic, draconian. And we can, we can, as Tony just did, we can break these down into medical terms like, uh, or epidemiological terms like epidemic and pandemic, governmental terms like draconian lockdown and martial law. And then these sort of other other kind of uh, uh, terms of the of, of the response, terms like um, calamity and Kafka esque and apocalypse, uh, were all looked up at that time as well. So Tony, rather than being Kafka esque, let's be Orwellian uh, and uh, talk. Uh, just reading your work is clear that. Uh, that Orwell's politics in the English language has embedded itself uh, in your mind as, as it has in mine. So the use of language uh, can be prescriptive, it can be descriptive, but it also can be agenda driven. Uh, and when I see phrases like let it rip, let the disease rip through the population to create herd immunity, um, you know, first of all, herd immunity among epidemiologists is rarely, if ever, used that way. Herd immunity is something that you achieve through vaccination programs, through, you know, immunization programs, or you achieve it by accident just because you've got nothing to offer and everybody gets sick and they get antibodies. But the idea of letting it rip, let the disease rip, <laughs> it's like let's slip the dogs of war or something. I mean, some of the language that we're seeing is really somebody trying to sell us on a concept that might be a little bit dodgy. Am I being unfair there? Not at all. Not at all. I, I, in my lexicon, such as it is at the moment, I've got a whole section which I call inappropriate terms. Now, that's very subjective. Lexicographers and linguists aren't supposed to be judgmental, but I think we've got to, we've got to underline this. Our own prime minister talked about take it on the chin. His father said, take one for the team. There's a lot of talk of, of the, the, perfect storms, body counts. And as you say, I think herd immunity is another very fascinating uh, phrase that we need to look at more carefully because it's not even the only available phrase, if you have to say that. There's also collective immunity or community immunity. So the very way that they used the word herd and, and tacitly promoted it, I think, conjured up something very frightening for a lot of people. And the, the word that collocates that goes most commonly with herd is cull. And one of our newspapers, the Telegraph in the UK, actually used culling the herd and didn't use it in a negative sense. 
the idea that this will sweep away the the elderly, the infirm, and the poor. Believe it or not. So there's what I call uh, there's toxic terminology tied up in this, and and this is Orwellian, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think the ghost of George Orwell is very much pacified by what we just what you just said, uh, or mollified anyway. So. Um, so, Peter, you know, there's another thing that's that I've watched that's kind of interesting, which is we've never been so interested as a society, at least in my lifetime, in what epidemiologists, virologists, microbiologists, public health officials have to say. And we, we want to understand it better. And I'm such a sad case that I've been listening to a podcast called This Week in Virology, where a whole bunch of clinicians and researchers discuss the latest findings. And they often discuss it in a way that is really directed towards one another. And this is, I think, in lexicography, an interesting thing. There's a way we might understand a word in common parlance, and then there's the way that that connoisseurs and sophisticates and members of whatever club it is we're talking about use the word. And 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 for Merriam-Webster, I would imagine there's kind of a struggle. You know, you want to, you take a word like inoculum, which means a certain thing probably to us. And I looked up Merriam-Webster's dictionary, but I listened to virologists and they use it a slightly different way. Uh, and, and I'm just wondering about that. I mean, you sort of have to do both, right? You have to figure out what it means to the average person, but also how it's being used by the specialists. Oh, absolutely. And then there are there are terms that, and I'm sure Tony can comment on this, there are terms that sort of shift beneath our feet. Um, one that comes to mind is epicenter, uh, which is now in the, in the context of this disease clearly refers to the geographical location where most uh, uh, positive identifications of the disease take place. That's not what the word originally meant. And initially, there were, there were, there were people correcting you, saying, oh, don't use it this way. Um, and it reminds me of the way that the term ground zero has changed in meaning also after a singular event. Uh, because ground zero originally meant the area on the ground below which an atomic bomb exploded. But now we all think of it as the location of, um, of the 9-11 attacks or of a, of a significant event. Um, an epicenter uh, kind of parallel uh, referred to the this part on the Earth's surface above where a, a, an earthquake took, takes place. Um, and yet now we clearly use it, everyone uses it to mean the center. The, and we use EPA almost as, a, as, a, as an intensifier, <laughs> you know, the, to say it's more than the center. It's the true center. It's the real center. And that's actually not what it means et etymologically, but it doesn't matter. That's what people use it to mean, and we have added that second sense to epicenter, meaning simply center. And that's one way that uh, absolutely that the, the, the common usage changes the, uh, the dictionary. We just have to, our job really in this case is to notice and to record that usage. So, Tony, I mean, a lot of this is pretty dire. Uh, but another thing that we do with words is play with them. We amuse ourselves by them. We, we sort of navigate our social word, worlds uh, through new coinages. And this is another thing that you've been uh, document, documenting. Sometimes it's picking up a word from another language. I mean, for example, on your list, hamster coughing. We actually talked about this on our show right at the beginning uh, of the shutdowns because that German word for storing stuff, hoarding things like a hamster stuffing its cheeks. I think it's been around in Germany for a while, but it's making its way to us. But 
But Tony, I know that both you and Peter are uh, interested in the term quarantini, uh, a word that perhaps I, I wonder if a word like that can survive this moment. Uh, Tony, will we still be talking about quarantinis a year from now? Oh, uh, will we be talking about locktail hour or um, <laughs> our ISO bars? Um, I'm really not sure, but I've got a terrible feeling that the drinking isn't going to stop anytime <laughs> soon. So, uh, but, uh, and, uh, yeah, um, this, this is another phenomenon, though, which I'm sure you've, you've discussed before and is, is very obvious. But after the technical terminology and the specialist terminology, and after we have to come to terms with that and pick it up and, and grasp it and use it, then, there was, then there's, there's been a second wave where ordinary, which I think is very exciting, again, for lexicographers who are tracking new language or new attitudes. And the second wave came when ordinary people started to coin their own language to, to describe a completely new reality. Part of it was homeworking, teleconferencing, part of it was public behavior. First started with just nicknames, Rona, Lady Rona, Roni, Roni the Rona, Boomer, remo boomer Remover, horrible phrase. But then lots of, lots of terms like isobar and uh, isodesk, coronacation, and I, one that I love is drivecation, which is where you have to take your holiday in your driveway, in your camper van, in your RV, <laughs> but you can't actually go anywhere. So, you know, I, th I thought it was very intriguing and, and heartening because ordinary people, the, most of the vocabulary comes from the top down, from officialdom at the beginning. And ordinary people start to fill in the gaps in the national conversation. And I think that's been another very, very, for a linguist, very interesting phenomenon. Right. I, w some of the ones on your list I was not familiar with, but I, I, want, to, I want to embrace them. Uh, in fact, we have a regular contributor to our show, Carolyn Payne, who will be very interested in the term zumped, which is when you dump somebody on Zoom. Um, and, and Peter, to that point, that, that, you know, these new technologies, in particular Zoom, I mean, Zoom isn't new, it's been around forever, but, um, but the number of people, the percentage of the population using Zoom uh, is, is going sky high. And I would assume anytime that happens, there's some of the kinds of portmanteaus that, Tony, that Tony's talking about, but also just people having to learn to do Zoom speak. Yeah, or just uh, making a verb out of that brand name, you know? Uh, I mean, we've seen it with Google, and we've seen it with Xerox, uh, and uh, we've seen it with Skype, and uh, we'll now see it with Zoom. And so when uh, a word becomes a verb, that, of course, takes it away from the, um, from the trademark uh, holder, and it enters the, uh, the, the, the language itself. And it's possible that those terms could be added to the dictionary, because they're going to be... Uh, well, they're ubiquitous today, and they're likely to stay. So, Tony, I want you to do a couple of other words from your list. Uh, the first one is, I think, sort of a portmanteau. Smizing. This is apparently something you do with your face mask on. Explain what smizing is. Yes, smizing. Smizing uh, actually has been around in the sort of fashion world for a while. But what it means is, and it's suddenly, it's one of those words that, that for most people is very new, very novel. But... 
that that really wasn't very relevant before, and it means um, smiling but using only your eyes because the rest of your face is covered by a mask or by some other face covering. So again, um, smiling with the eyes only uh, suddenly becomes, for many people, extraordinarily important um, in, in this new reality. When Irish Isles are smising, it doesn't really work, does it? Um, and so tell us about yobdobbing, too. That's uh, producer Betsy Kaplan's favorite on the list. Well, yobs, yobs in um, British and Australian English means thugs or lout, loutish people, people who behave badly antisocially, especially in public. Uh, and it is actually um, backslang from the word boy. It used to mean a naughty boy. But um, dobbing is Australian, and it means informing on or telling tales on people. So job dobbing is informing to the authorities about the bad behavior of your neighbors. And this has become a whole thing, like corona shaming and, and perhaps furlough shaming, but um, you know that, 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 like in wartime, perhaps people are people are being encouraged in the UK at least to inform on their neighbours, and this is another kind of domestic phenomenon, if you like, that, that's that's really quite arresting and telling. So, uh, yeah, so you would be yobdobbing on some COVID idiot. Um, uh, <laughs> So we have to take a little break here. We'll be back with more of Peter Sokolowski and Tony Thorne after this. I is just what I was And I mean who I be To love the language You got to be born on the banks of the Mississippi I'll say thanks right now to Cat Pastor, who's in the studio, uh, keeping me on my toes and making sure I don't screw up too bad. She's the person who makes it possible for us to WFH. Um, and by us, I mean me and Betsy Kaplan, senior producer and producer of this episode. We're talking today about words. I was listening to this Canadian, young Canadian woman, can, comedian, Canadian comedian, um, who was talking the other day about how she had suddenly noticed that all of the words, all the phrases for great success are kind of violent these days. And she had been talking to her sister, who was about to have her first baby, about to go into the hospital to have her, her first baby. And, and this comedian said, don't worry, you're going to kill it. Uh, and her sister said, no, 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 no. And, and she said, no, really, you're going to crush it. Uh, and her sister said, no, no. And, and she said, no, no, seriously, you're going to beat this thing. Uh, so yes, sometimes language changes in ways that disconcert us. Uh, here to track this expertly are Peter Sokolowski, a lexicographer and Editor-at-Large with Merriam-Webster, uh, and Tony Thorne, lexicographer, linguist, and language consultant in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at King's College London. So, um, you know, there's a way, Tony, in which it does seem that we need lexicographers now more than ever. Maybe also, once again, going not to keep harking back to Orwell's essay, but um, people, somebody besides agenda-driven people have to decide what words mean, have to decide and have to tell us whether words are being used correctly or accurately. I mean, even a term like pandemic is a term that has a meaning 
and people may or may want to may or may not choose to use that word not based on its accuracy or, or fitness but or but based on how they want to portray reality maybe you can say a little bit more about that well i think um first of all i mean Again, and I'm sure you, you and your listeners are very well aware of this. There's, the thing about words is, when linguists and lexicologists look at words, they talk about denotation. That is what the word defines, what it means, at a at a surface level. And they talk about um, they talk about um, uh, what a word implies. And what a word, and, and why a word, or rather they don't. Linguists normally stick with denotation, defining a word. But connotation, this is what the word suggests, what it, what it triggers in people. And I think that the politicians in particular have been, have been unaware of that distinction. They've been using language as if it only has one surface meaning that everybody will accept. And I've actually argued, this may sound ridiculous and fanciful to you, but I've argued that linguists should be involved in, in helping to generate and to scrutinize the official national mes- messaging, at least from the government, because they're not. They haven't been. This is being done by spin doctors, by um, unelected advisors, by speech writers, by journalists who've been co-opted, but not by experts in language. And that's why I think you have a lot of you have had, in the UK at least, a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of inappropriate language. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, killing it, and we have smashing it in the UK. This is, <laughs> this is long-standing slang for being successful. But the whole area, the whole semantic area of meaning connected with conflict, violence, and war has been manipulated and has been imposed uh, during this pandemic, and I think, again, in many cases, and I'm not the only one to say this by far, it's been inappropriate. And, and who knows what the psychological effect has actually been on people. Right. I think we have a tendency when we're at war to use terms of peace. You know, Orwell talks about pacification, village pacification, which basically means burning a village, you know, or transfer of populations, rectification of frontiers, elimination of unreliable elements, all these euphemisms for very violent and forceful things. And then when we're not at war, we use much more violent imagery. And But, you know, to Tony's point, Peter, I actually don't think, for the most part, the government wants people like you and Tony around. They want people like Frank <laughs> Luntz and uh, maybe George Lakoff on the Democratic side, people who understand the power of words to excite emotions, to get right to the limbic system and activate you know, really powerful neurochemicals. Uh, I'm not sure that they want Peter Sokolowski telling them what the word actually does mean. <laughs> And I don't want to have that role. However, it's clear to us through our data and which words people are looking up. For example, today, the words have to do with racism and systemic racism and uh, antebellum, you know, all, all kinds of things that are in the news that have pushed the pandemic a little bit down the list in our in our immediate concerns. But in terms of stress and crisis, it's clear that people turn to the dictionary, which means that 
you know, as you and I have talked about before, there is a crisis of meaning that goes on. I mean, at times you could say it's a war on science, an official war on science, or maybe in this era of fake news and alternative facts, people are seeking a neutral and objective arbiter of meaning, and the backstop ends up being the dictionary. My feeling is the dictionary has always served this function, but now we can measure it more easily because we have it online. And it does, I think, uh, to your point, make our job more important, which is to say it's it's all it's ever more important to be that neutral and objective arbiter of meaning, to present our definitions with enough authority and enough research that we are trusted by everyone. Right. And sometimes it can be, I mean, the other day, for example, President Trump, whom we've managed to go 37 minutes without mentioning, um, <laughs> I talked to, he tweeted about the late, great Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and, you know, typically, Peter, late, usually, I don't know if there's a time limit on late, but you usually use it, use it to refer, refer to somebody who's died but maybe not everybody knows that. And that's the, that's the way that I would, at least at a very heuristic level, understand that word. That, you know, my late father, just so you don't think my father's still alive. Um, but I, I'm not really familiar with calling, you know, people from the 19th century late to, to, to emphasize the fact that they're dead. <laughs> Our definition says living comparatively recently, um, and we and you can sub substitute it with now deceased, and that's to, to your point. In other words, you're informing someone who may not know. So uh, maybe you know someone needs to inform him. He may not know uh, what what the term means. But again, that's that's nothing new. And our job isn't to, you know, we're not here to be the school teachers for people. Um, but we do think that you know we think that words matter. That in in fact actions and words are incredibly important at the political level, at, at every single level of government, and that uh, if our words and our actions are more closely matched, then we gain the trust of the public more easily. And I, I just, I, I would always hope that that's a direction that would be natural for, for everyone. Unfortunately, that may not be true. You know, Tony, I want to go back to this war metaphor business, because you know, in some ways, I can understand why a concerned public health official wanting to convey the seriousness of the situation, wanting to to convince people that they really do have to be vigilant and they do have to follow guidelines and that there are attendant risks to everybody if they don't, why they might start using terms like we're under attack. You know, this is a war. We have an invisible enemy. Uh, but but I think you're suggesting that the the one of the precipitates of that w would be frightening people, th imagining that they do have an enemy, which isn't really quite true. The virus is not even really alive. It certainly doesn't know that we're there. It's just looking for uh, a place to home to live. It happens to destroy its homes uh, pretty quickly. But but say more about how you feel the war terminology uh, affects people. I think this is a, a genuinely conflicted area of of the reality and the language because there there's an obvious relevance of of war comparisons because they are the only other dramatic life and death phenomena that tend to to involve nearly all if not all of a population suddenly and 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 to be potentially devastating so there is you know using war as a metaphor is not 
it's not stupid, it's not irrelevant. But I think if you go deeper into the language that has been used, and again, in the UK, there's what, what has been called um, by an Australian critic, militarized nostalgia, mm. and the language of bravery and heroism and service. And the problem with using this, of course, again, it's, 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 it would be the first instinct of most people, especially most journalists, to, to, and, and to cast our frontline health people as heroes, and they are. But if you, if you use language, and here's another example by, by our Prime Minister. He talked, about the, he talked uh, to the nation about the, the virus being uh, like an invisible mugger, somebody who mugs you in the street to take your money and injure you, and said that we should all fight back and, and wrestle it to the ground. Well, if you take that image further, and perhaps, again, you know, linguists are very pedantic and most people aren't, but if you take that further, it suggests, doesn't it, that if you don't fight the mugger or you're not able or you're not strong enough because you're over 70 or frail to wrestle the mugger to the ground, that you're somehow failing. And, and I think the whole vocabulary of, of heroes um, and this, if you talk about combatants, you're suggesting there are non-combatants. If you talk about heroes, you're suggesting there are people who, who, have, who are victims who have, or who have failed to be brave enough. So I think it's, again, it's a very, very conflicted area of, of thinking and language. All right, and gonna, I'd like to jump in and just yeah, say ahead, we, Peter, we've, yeah. seen, we've seen this before, and, and I've, I've encountered this exact argument regarding cancer you know uh you know someone lost their battle with cancer and you're you're attributing um almost a, a failure of will uh where that yeah. does not apply yeah. where and and i think that that kind of um metaphor is unhelpful in those cases there's another piece to this too which takes us out of the you know out of the disease realm to the to the more social which is that if we think this is a thing that we can defeat i i, I am seeing uh, in the united states i'm sure it's happening everywhere people think well we've paid our dues three months at home okay let's you know let's go back to work we you know we we, we won we, we're done now but that's that's not helpful that's not actually what's going on and we haven't paid our dues <laughs> um, we haven't earned anything by staying home except remaining uh, healthy. And so, you know, there's a problem with the consequence of this. There is no winning if there isn't a virus, for example. Um, and so we, the war metaphor really, you know, sort of collapses on itself. Actually, the only war metaphor that's been particularly useful, I think, is that whole Churchillian thing about the end of the beginning. Uh, yes. but certainly not the end. All right. So we have to stop here. Uh, because we have one more segment to go. It's been so much fun to spend uh, time with Tony Thorne, lexicographer, linguist, and language consultant in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at King's College in London, and Peter Sokolowski, old friend, lexicographer, editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster. I'm absolutely sure this show is going to go viral. Oh, see, I did another one of these things. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about what advertising does with all the tropes we've just talked about. In these uncertain times, it's important to know you have a friend. Over the years, through thick and thin, 
Santa Ana frozen waffle tacos have been there to support you. And now, Santa Ana frozen waffle tacos salute the brave healthcare workers who will lead us into the sun, where there will be a joyous breakfast meal of Santa Ana frozen waffle tacos that we can all enjoy together. America, we stand with you. All right, you can fade the music. That's just sort of the kind of commercial that you hear these days, right? I mean, they're just everywhere. Uh, and their their tropes are just so easy to grab hold of, too. Joining us now is Justin Peters, correspondent for Slate and the author of The Idealist, Aaron Swartz and the Rise of Free Culture on the Internet. Uh, he uh, has written for Slate about the 13 different kinds of ads we're seeing during the pandemic. Justin Peters, first of all, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. And, you know, the only thing that was missing on that is the news that you can now get Santa Ana frozen waffle tacos via contactless delivery. Right. Oh, I should have done that. You're, you're so right. And and contactless is, I mean, we've just been talking to lexicographers, and I did have contactless on my list because I'm, I just don't think it's, I mean, maybe it was around, maybe it was a thing. But, I mean, now everything is contactless, too. So, um, so, oh, yeah. yeah, there's all sorts of words that yeah. you're hearing now that you never really heard before. And you're hearing them now on television ads, um, which is sort of odd to see this new vocabulary being mainstreamed through um, commercials trying to sell uh, uh, hamburgers and fast food pizza. Right. So, I mean, initially in the first wave of pandemic commercials, there was this solemnity. I mean, first of all, the pandemic apparently killed every musician who played an instrument other than the piano um, because everything <laughs> was just a piano uh, and somebody talking. And, and frequently you had to watch all the way to the end of the commercial before you understood that, yes, we are all in this together, et cetera, et cetera. But that has something to do with Subaru. Um, and so it seemed as though the initial commercials just they wanted to say something very solemn and maybe unifying. And then they would just sort of what, just sort of tack themselves onto the on, onto the end of that. Yeah, there's sort of you can there's four stages of how the commercials have progressed over the course of the pandemic. And at first, you're absolutely right. The brands had no idea what to do here. They did not want to be seen as insensitive and trying to promote breakfast cereal um, while, you know, people are going to the hospital in record numbers. So, you know, they were muddled. You had a lot of mournful piano with, you know, in these troubled times, uh, blah, blah, blah is here for you. And then at the end, you're like, oh, this is a commercial for a car. Um after a little bit, you know, viewers and uh, ad makers got sick of that. And then they were even more empathetic as the true toll of the pandemic uh, became clear. And, you know, then people got sick of that. And then the ads started to be resolute, right? You know, uh, saluting the uh, fortitude and stamina of Americans and the first responders. And, you know, we're all in this together and we're going to get through this because this is America. And then at this point right now, I think the advertisers of America are sick of talking about what America is and how strong we are and how sad it all is. And they just want people back out there consuming with the patterns that they've done for you know hundreds of years. So it's been a real roller coaster ride watching ads throughout all of this. 
Right. Somebody said in a comment to one of the videos, it's gone from buy our stuff to in these uncertain times, buy our stuff. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, I mean, it seems to me that they th there is a certain cynicism, I think, inherent, particularly in these these once again doleful piano music montages of frontline workers who are in face shields and masks and they're gowned and you know uh wearing shoe covers and stuff i saw one last night that was like that it said nice things about step by step unflinchingly they step forward to take care of us and it was an ad for dr shoals and i guess you could sort of say well yeah nurses are on their feet a lot and probably dr shoals is you know but i mean it just seems so exploitive. I mean, is anybody, I mean, I'm just wondering whether, how the healthcare workers feel about that. I guess we don't know. Oh, I mean, I, I, if I were a healthcare worker working through this, you know, I would probably too, I'd probably be too wiped at the end of my day to watch TV. So, you know, that's one blessing, but I think you're exactly right that it's exploitative. Or at least it feels like awfully cynical to be praising essential workers as a means of trying to sell inessential goods to those same workers and people who support them. You know, I think of this one McDonald's commercial I saw uh, in the beginning of May, end of April, where, you know, McDonald's praises are essential workers. And, you know, to thank them, they can get a free meal at McDonald's once a day, no substitutions uh, for a two week period. And, you know, I get it. That's nice. If you're hungry and you're on your way home from the hospital and got to have a bite, sure, get that free meal. But what McDonald's and these other brands are clearly trying to do are to share in some of the glory that is accruing to these actually brave people and, you know, have the couch potatoes sitting at home think, gosh, McDonald's is, you know, sort of heroic, too, in offering free McNuggets to a healthcare worker once a day. And it's all sort of icky to me <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work for me right i mean and we one might have thought that such a dire situation and such a solemn situation would have excited some of the scant shame oriented resources that exist within advertising but it kind of it seems not to have happened that much i mean when i see a commercial where they say here at nissan we've always been with you through thick and thin I'm thinking, in what sense? I mean, you know, my understanding is that... Like, have you? My good buddy <laughs> Nissan? You know, you know who, who am I going to call when my mom dies? Nissan, exactly. first and foremost. No, it's not true. Yeah. It's completely uh, ludicrous. Yeah, it's, 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 I thought that they would be called on that more than they probably have been. Well, let's hear, uh, as you point out, they're sort of tired now of celebrating you know, healthcare workers and talking about how we all stand together in America or sit together inside cars. They just want to talk, I think, a little bit more about their stuff. Here's a Kraft Heinz ad. Given the current situation, we are all affected by what is going on in America today. And I was asking myself, like, what could I do? I feel proud that along with my colleagues, I have been called upon to do what we can to help in this situation. I feel like I'm doing it for all the families in America. We're not going anywhere. We're here. This is bigger than all of us. So, Justin, this is an assembly line worker, uh, and we're seeing kind of, what, unmasked 
workers making packages of ketchup and macaroni and cheese and stuff? Oh yeah, like it's it's a one minute spot in a Kraft Heinz production facility where a bunch of workers who are conspicuously not wearing masks are looking like they're having a great time packaging big jugs of barbecue sauce and you know things uh, mac and cheese to send out to you the terrified housebound American and you know it's in a rubric that I deemed in my article the you know we're pretty heroic ourselves ad which you see a lot of these brands trying to uh, you know, fool the public into thinking that just by, you know, maintaining their production line and, you know, not, you know, closing down that they are on par with, you know, the doctors and nurses and everyone who've actually been taking risks in this. And I find those ads particularly offensive, especially when you consider that Kraft Heinz in particular, um, you know, was, has been offering its workers bonuses to come to work but it's a hundred dollars per week and you don't get the bonus if you don't come to work. So when you're hearing these workers saying, you know, I feel like I'm doing my part here to, you know, help America by making ketchup. It's like, well, okay. But also if you didn't do this, then you would lose a lot of money and Kraft Heinz might treat you as a hero when they're putting you on TV, but do they actually back that up with, giving you stable wages and, you know, job security down the line. And it just lays bare some of the fundamental hypocrisies between how brands want to be seen by the public and how they actually end up treating these workers whom they're making so much of on television. I also like that Heinz says we're not going anywhere, you know, like what are they, we're, we're going to run and flee to the hills and figure out what to put on your own hamburgers <laughs> from now on. We're not, we right, can't don't do worry. We like, just, Heinz we is resolute. It. You don't have to worry about trying to switch to Hunt's uh, oh. much inferior ketchup. Right. All right. We have to stop the, there. Justin Peters, correspondent for Slate. You should read his article, author of the, also of the idealist Aaron Swartz and the rise of free culture on the internet. Thanks again to Kat and to Betsy Kaplan. And uh, I forget what's happening <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> but we are actually taking a day off tomorrow which we haven't really done very much of so i do know that part 